Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the energy infrastructure in the Middle East is certainly getting a lot of attention. There's been a lot of attacks over the last several months on oil fields, on tankers, just raising the question of the vulnerability uh, of that infrastructure, that very important source of uh, energy in the world. To get a sense of what's going on, we welcome Seth Gray. Seth is the president and CEO of Lightbridge Corporation, uh, located in Reston, Virginia, joining us on the phone. So Seth, again, we've had a series of attacks uh, in the Middle East on some of the oil infrastructure. How vulnerable do you consider that part of the world to be in terms of oil infrastructure? Well, clearly it's vulnerable, which is you know, very sad and very dangerous, as we see from the drone attacks on the Saudi oil fields, as we see on the attacks on the Iranian oil tanker. Uh, one of the programs we have going under the Department of Energy here in this country is to improve our grid resiliency so that we have power plants that have can have fuel on site. And if the supply is cut off, they can run for months or even years, the greatest of which are the nuclear power plants, which have several years of fuel on site. So even if supplies are cut off, they could run for years. And in particular, as the U.S. is producing more oil domestically, the potential cutoffs in supply of oil really threaten our allies, including Japan and many others that are very dependent on Middle East oil. So, you know, it's an issue for us and it's an issue for our allies. So, Seth, considering the fact that your company is a nuclear fuel technology company, it's not surprising that you'd say, look, it's so important to build that grid. But I'm wondering uh, how secure the nuclear grid would be or could be, uh, given the fact that clearly energy infrastructure is a very, very uh, big target right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, the reactor sites themselves are are very robust, very protected sites with many feet of concrete and steel protecting the facilities. And we are moving toward more local grids over time in this country, too, with small reactors, advanced technologies coming out so that rather than just the giant interconnected electric grids that could be attacked, there could be smaller grids which provide a level of protection unto themselves. We're also starting to electrify the transportation sector with electric cars, with electric buses, there are a lot of projections that will increase the use of electricity by 50% in the United States in the next couple decades and similarly around the world, which puts even more pressure on the electric grid and not having the source of energy cut off. So what we're seeing there is an opportunity for American innovation, not just for domestic markets, but for exports for this advanced technology that will produce no carbon as we do move to electrify the transportation sector in addition to the uh, traditional electricity sectors. Seth, just give us a sense of kind of the, the, the state of nuclear energy in the United States. Are we adding plants? Are we taking plants offline? What's kind of the trend here and how do you think that's going to play out? Well, we're pretty level at about 19%, 19% of our electricity from nuclear power. 
And we've closed some plants. We have two plants under construction in Georgia now. But mostly as the demand for electricity has been rising, we've been improving the efficiency of the existing plants to stay level at that 19%. Now we're in danger of that falling down a bit and losing that zero carbon energy from the grid. So we have companies like Lightbridge bringing new technologies that can better justify the economic case of keeping those plants open and building new plants. But part of the state domestically is where our nuclear companies are and the companies in the supply chain for exports because the international market is bigger than the domestic market. And the greatest threats are from Russia and China, which together are taking about 60% of the global market in new reactors. And they are doing that partly for strategic reasons, for their national security reasons, setting 100-year supply relationships with countries like Turkey, where Russia is selling reactors to. And that does not necessarily lead to good things in Turkey and other places where they're selling reactors. So there are national security implications as well for Americans competing and winning against Russia and China overseas. How expensive or or cheap is, what's the relative cost of nuclear energy versus, say, crude? Well, when, when you levelize the cost of electricity, nuclear power is cheaper. It, it's quite a bit cheaper overall from these reactors that are already built and are operating. It's the new reactors that are being built that are having problems with the cost overruns that are making those expensive. But as we design the new advanced reactors and uh, build more of them and we stop building a first-of-a-kind plant, the new reactors will also produce cheaper electricity. How much is the lack of adoption of nuclear energy in the United States relative to uh, some of its competitors, competing nations? How much is this due just because there's an aversion to the word nuclear and the fear uh, that if something happens that it could be catastrophic? Well, look, obviously that's part of it. Uh, In the United States, nuclear is the safest industry we have. Nobody has ever died from radiation in the history of the industry here. Even at the only accident we ever had at Three Mile Island, nobody died, nobody was hurt. And in fact, the twin plant on the same site kept operating for decades until just a few weeks ago when it was closed down. So we know how to build and operate these reactors very safely so that no one can can be hurt. And with the new advanced technologies that are coming, they'll be even safer with small underground plants uh, where there will be no danger to the public. Seth, what countries are deploying nuclear most aggressively? Well, right now we're seeing the United Arab Emirates uh, about to start opening four nuclear power plants that they've been building that will supply about a quarter of their country. In terms of exports, Russia is the largest in the world right now, followed by China. The U.K. is making a big push to build new reactors, including one potentially from China, which shows how China is really impacting even our closest allies. And um, generally, France has always been very strong in nuclear power, and they're, they're deploying some in their own country as well as in neighboring European countries, and actually even two in China. So the, those are the major markets right now. And for U.S. companies throughout the supply chains, lots of manufacturing companies, it's important that we keep pace and compete with them. 
Seth Gray, thank you so much for being with us. Seth Gray is president and chief executive officer of Lightbridge Corporation. There's been a feeling that the bigger risk right now to markets at a time of central bank support and slowing but still uh, positive growth is a, a trade deal that actually encourages people to rush into markets. Morgan Stanley today saying, don't do it. It hasn't worked before. It won't work this time. Let's find out if Steve Dudash agrees. He's president of IHT Wealth Management based in Chicago. Steve, do you agree that if there is some sort of trade deal that isn't necessarily a signal to just go dive back into riskier stocks? Does anyone, has anyone seen the same cycle over and over and over again over the last year or so? They come out and they say, we got a trade deal or a partial deal. We're going to work out on something. And the markets go up a percent or two. And then two weeks later, they turn around and like, oh, no, we're not going to get a trade deal. No one wants to work this out. And then the cycle repeats itself over and over. So, yes, I know they came out with some partial potential plan. And then today they didn't surprise anyone come out and say, no, maybe we don't have a plan. No one I do not believe right now that we're going to see some magical, huge deal worked out overnight, or at least in the short order, um, that answers all those questions and gives the market true clarity anytime soon. It's too massive of a deal, and there's too much political drama around it for it to happen in such a short period of time. Steve, to what extent, if any, do you think that this trade uncertainty is weighing on global economic growth? I think it's it's completely been weighing on it. If you if you strip out the tax break that took place a couple years ago and the market snapping up because of that, you strip that out, we've been basically range-bound for years now. Over and over again, we've not seen any substantial growth. Now, that's a good thing, too, to the extent that, you know, I know a lot of people are worried about inversion right now. I am not buying into that to the same extreme. And they're worried about recession that could be meant from that, which, again, I do not believe in. Um, but if things do level off sideways, it's not like we have this euphoric high stock market price that's built on just, you know, emotion. It's been flat for years with the exception of that trade um, tax deal. And therefore, it's not like we have a huge downside risk um, posed to it. So what are you buying? I'm buying... <laughs> I personally do believe that they'll eventually get some sort of trade deal done over the next few six months, let's just say, because of the politics involved. The Trump organization does need to win. This is the one area that they can control a great deal of it. I think the tech sector has been hit the hardest due uh, to the trade deal, certainly the semiconductor, semiconductor sector. If you want to go high risk, high return, I think that's an area where you can overload right now with the assumption that something works out, with the assumption that we are not sitting in uh, right before a recession just because of the inversion that's going on. Uh, and question. you've got a Fed cutting into it. Yes. I'm looking at Micron shares. They're up 42% yeah. this year. How do, you, how do you say that they've gotten hit pretty hard from the, uh, the trade war concerns? Because, they, frankly, because they probably should be higher right now. And you're, in the sample size, just the year to date, doesn't show how you're looking in the years past when it got hit a lot harder. I think there's so much uncertainty in the semiconductor sector right now because of the trade war and because of the unknown of how that's going to affect a political piece that is a part of the day of that deal right now that you're seeing restrictions on what the actual return should be. We are in the middle of the internet of everything, right? 
everything is getting computerized. There's only going to be needing more and more chips to integrate everything that we do in the future. And so you remove that politically induced um, unknown to it, and you have a, a very strong sector in moving forward. So, Steve, how do you feel, I guess, within the tech sector about the FANG stocks? They've been such a big, big driver really over the last decade, both on the upside and on the downside. Yeah, I think about the fourth quarter, of, fourth quarter of last year. Where are you on those names? I don't, personally, I don't believe in Facebook. I think that the business model has been dying and that they're getting eaten up by their competition, including themselves and Instagram, and therefore generating less revenue um, per click because of it. Um, the Amazons of the world... I've been on Amazon's bandwagon for a decade now. A decade ago, people were talking about how it was overpriced. Everyone uses it more and more, and it's easier and easier to buy anything at any given time. So I know people like to lump Fang in together as one big thing. It's just not. Netflix is not the same as Facebook. Uh, Amazon is not the same as Google. I, it was a cute little term that people could use for a couple of years there, but I think you've got to be a little more selective on what you're buying. I believe Facebook is a dying business model right now. So am I going to look at that as the same as Amazon, which I think is a high-growth business model? No. Not Very interesting. Close. Facebook, uh, just looking at the stock, uh, up about 40% this year. Um, but you know, a lot of those tech stocks continue to perform well. Steve Dudash, thanks so much for joining us. Steve is the president of IHT Wealth Management based in Chicago, giving us his thoughts on the market. He does not see uh, a recession. Um, it does not. He's not worried about the uh, when we had that inverted yield curve uh, several weeks ago. Uh, and uh, I think probably believes on some light deal in the next six months. Might All that might be enough with a uh, accommodative Fed for equities. Well, space is a growth business, and it's no longer the sole purview of NASA. Investors can actually play it via the ETF market to give us a sense of what's going on in the space investing race. We welcome Andrew Shannon, Chief Executive Officer of Procure AM, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Real quickly, just tell us what Procure AM is and how you kind of interact with the space business. So Procure AM is a registered investment advisor where we launch both our proprietary own ideas for ETFs as well as help third parties launch their products. And UFO is the first product that we've brought to market, listed on the New York Stock Exchange, launched in April of this year. So I'm looking right now at UFO, uh, which is obviously a really catchy ticker, and there's obviously a lot of intrigue around space exploration. What exactly do you invest in? So I think a lot of people have wanted to invest in space for a long time. And until launching this fund and very recently, it's been a fairly difficult space to actually get exposure to. And so unless you're an institution making a private, uh, you know, a private company type of purchase, you know, there weren't too many pure play space companies. But right now, this market has really expanded and has brought new entrants into the market. And what we've seen is that satellite companies are a very big driver of this industry, as well as some of the traditional aerospace and defense companies companies, but those aren't typically as pure play. So when you're looking at our fund, what you're actually getting exposure to is uh, satellite operators and manufacturers, uh, launch equipment company, ground station company, as well as other companies that are completely reliant upon um, space-based systems in order to get their services or products to market. 
Space and exploration has changed a lot in my lifetime. I remember being a little kid watching the moon landings. Um, now it seems like, you know, rockets are going up left, right, and center, and I don't know who's sending them up there. So, But give us a sense of how space has kind of changed, and it was the purview of kind of the U.S. government, maybe the Russian government, NASA, but now there's mostly private, right? Right. So in the early days, you have the, the ESA and Roscosmos and NASA, and those government agencies were really the driving force for the space economy. And this year, actually, the um, just a couple of weeks ago, the numbers came out for the 2018 space industry, and it set a new record for itself, uh, roughly $414 billion plus dollars um, spent on space was uh and so going over 400 billion for the first time ever and then you look at morgan stanley that's been building up research groups as well as bank of america morgan stanley's predicting um over a trillion dollars by 2040 bank of america sees up to 2.7 trillion dollar industry by 2045 so you're looking at a lot of um analysts out there looking to see this this be a continuing trend of growth for the broader space industry so i'm looking right now at the assets in ufo it's uh 12 million dollars and i'm wondering what you need it to get up to in order for this to be sort of a sustainable uh, investment vehicle in itself? So break even for, for a product such as this is in the several tens of millions typically. Um, but you know, right now we just launched this product in April. So to be at 12 million, we're, we're pretty happy given that the summer is typically a pretty dead season for growth. How much is the uh, construction of an index guided by what investors are asking for versus what uh, registered investment advisors are looking to be able to provide in terms of you know, a pitch? That's a really good question because I think a lot of times you'll see a thematic fund and maybe the, the name is really catchy. And so someone says, oh, it invests in this you know, thematic area. I want to own it. But when you actually look at the index and boil it down, you're not actually getting the exposure that you actually wanted to when you invested in that product. So for me, looking at the index is one of the first most important aspects of building a truly representative thematic product. And for this, we actually um, have a partner who's a former director of the Space Foundation, um, is, is, has been studying space policy, space business, all these various areas, as well as the technologies. And he actually built this index. So I think what, what he was able to do is get a pretty strong representation of what the global publicly traded space industry looks like. So you're not going to get every single company because some of them are private and some of them are maybe you know, smaller or less liquid companies. But when you actually look at the breakdown, as far as what's driving the space economy, a lot of these names are represented in the fund today. So the space business is growing. It's becoming more and more private. Are you expecting more publicly traded companies to come into the marketplace? Um, I, I would certainly like to see that. I think you know, the one getting the most buzz recently on that front is Virgin Galactic, which did this, uh, this SPAC kind of merger that can bring it out to market, hopefully within the next couple of weeks or months, um, which could be a new way for investors to get exposure to the space industry. Um, you know, I, I love to see uh, a strong industry that you're constantly seeing acquisitions and IPOs and things like that. And you know, I, I hope we're getting closer to that stage. But right now, you know, 31 companies from around the world is, is a pretty, um, in my view, an interesting way to get exposure to this industry. Andrew Shannon, thank you so much for being with us. Andrew Shannon is CEO of Procure AM. And I got to say, UFO brings me back to watching Doctor Who growing up <laughs> right. with the TARDIS. Yep. And with, you know, the different, the seven different doctors. I could geek out on, you, on science on fiction, space, okay. I, on pretty much anything, but okay. definitely science fiction and, and <laughs> yeah, space right. exploration. <laughs> we appreciate you being with us.
There's a lot of back and forth in the political sphere when it comes to global warming, climate change, and some of the steps being taken. But the trend is clear when you take a look at businesses. And joining us now to discuss that, we are very pleased to say, is Rich Lesser, who is the chief executive officer of Boston Consulting Group, which is based in New York. But Rich right now is in Munich, Germany. And before we talk about climate change, what are you doing in Munich? I'm in the middle. Hello, Lisa. It's nice to be with you. I'm in the middle of an around the world uh, trip, just visiting clients, doing some meetings around the world. So I was in Boston, then Abu Dhabi, now here, then off to Asia, then Seattle, then back home. Sounds pretty exciting. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about climate change and what your research has shown in terms of the shift that you've been seeing uh, among the C-suite offices. Sure. So, um, so, so first, just the facts, and then what we're observing in terms of the dialogue. The facts are really clear. The economic downside from not addressing climate change is enormous. And we're right now not on a one-and-a-half-degree path or a two-degree path. We're on a much higher path, depending on who you talk to, three-and-a-half or even four degrees. The economic consequences of that are enormous. What was fascinating to us, starting with what we just happened to do in Germany, coincidentally, and have now extended around the world, is when you model through the macroeconomic impacts of addressing climate change, at a macroeconomic level, they actually, even if a country does it alone, of course it gets better if all of us do it together, the, the macroeconomic case is quite strong. So to take uh, Germany and the U.S., for example, if you were to, you could improve 80% of carbon emissions, take down carbon emissions 80% in Germany and in the 70s in the U.S. with no net negative economic impact. Um, And that's true in many other countries around the world. The last 20 or 30% to get to net zero by 2050, that will require technological innovation or have some economic consequence if we can't find that innovation. So then the question is, if that's so good, why don't companies just go do this? It's because while it may be true at a macroeconomic level that the net impact is slightly positive or neutral macroeconomically, for individual sectors, it will clearly be very hard in many sectors of the economy. So we need governments to set good policy, to create the right incentives, ideally to create a market for carbon that will encourage companies to take the right action because sector by sector, it won't always make sense to do it on their own. So C-suite executives now realize how much the public cares. And I think many companies are getting their arms around being much more aggressive on this. So Rich, how difficult is it for you and for your clients to push through meaningful sustainability issues when President Trump and the U.S. administration does not appear to be supporting that at all? I think most companies are realizing that there's more opportunity to make progress than they realize and more of a sense of urgency from many of their customers than might have been in place a couple years ago. And that will lead to real progress. I think we're also seeing more integration across the public, private, and social sector than we had before. But let's be clear, in certain sectors of the economy, absent effective government action it will not go as far as it needs to go. And so the lack of pro- the lack of engagement, support, and acknowledgement of the magnitude of the issue from the U.S. government and other governments, it's not the only one, but, but certainly the U.S., given the size of its economy, has a meaningful impact on how far we're going to get, even if companies are serious and even if companies genuinely try to make progress. 
Can you give us an example of a concrete measure that an industry has been taking that actually costs them uh, quite a bit of money that moves them toward being more sustainable? I think that's not where most companies are right now. I don't think most companies feel like they either have a defense from their investor base or from others to be able to do things that have purely negative economic consequences. I think the focus right now is that there are a lot of ways you can get better. We see the banks pushing much more investment towards sustainable and renewable industry plays. You see the auto industry pushing towards electric vehicles. You see many industrial sectors focused on waste and water. But, But part of the challenge we've got is it's very hard for one company to take the risk of very negative economic consequences when you've got activist investors and you've got how they'll be portrayed in the financial markets. If it was a price on carbon or some other way to have everybody bear a cost, then I think you could see much more aggressive action that would have negative consequences for one, but collectively will have marginal impact if if it's shared burden. Without that kind of measure, though, are any of these companies taking real measures toward becoming more sustainable, or is it more of a PR push? I don't think it's PR. I don't, so to be direct, I don't think it's PR. I think it's a genuine desire to make progress, but I think a genuine desire to make progress within the constraint of having real financial pressures on them. And and I don't think we're yet at the stage because because the financial markets, as you know, more, more than most, you know, can be pretty unrelenting and and it's hard to do that. But but what I think companies are discovering, so that makes it sound like nothing's happening. I don't feel that way. I think what we see in many sectors is people looking in ways to find win wins, to find wins to to drive carbon out of their footprints, to encourage investments in their industry or in other industries, to encourage their suppliers to be bolder in improving their operations because they're the customers for those suppliers. So it's, it's genuine action, but it's not sufficient action. So, Rich, do we need an international framework to really push this forward? So that was the interesting thing. We will be so much better off with an international framework. But look around the world right now. We're not finding international frameworks on many topics right now. Trade, you know, many issues. So, so we, it's, it's unfortunate because it would be so much easier for the world to move if we move together. But what was interesting about our research is that countries can take big actions on their own that are, do not bear the negative economic consequences that are sometimes portrayed to make major progress. Again, I don't want to overstate. It's not to get net zero carbon by 2050 on their own, but to get 70 or 80% of the way there is still a huge step that could be done without negative economic consequences at a country level. But it has to deal with the consequences sector by sector in steel and cement, in, in the energy industries, in other places, in order to be able to make that viable for individual companies to take the kind of actions that we need to have them take. Yep. This may be an an issue of uh, Think Globally and Act uh, Locally. Rich Lesser, thanks so much for joining us. Rich is the Chief Executive Officer of Boston Consulting Group, joining us on the phone from Munich, Germany, as he does his around-the-world trip uh, visiting clients, uh, talking about climate change and how these companies should uh, be dealing with it. A very compelling topic. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.